Tonight, Catholic leaders in Northern Ireland have accused the British of mass murder. The Cardinal Primate of Ireland has demanded an investigation by British Prime Minister Heath, and the Irish Republican Army has sworn to avenge the deaths in Londonderry. That's how Garrick Utley opened the NBC Evening News on January 30th, 1972, as outrage was growing in response to Bloody Sunday. The IRA wasn't the only group that wanted vengeance. Two days after the killings, tens of thousands of angry protesters gathered outside the British Embassy in Dublin. They spent all afternoon fighting to get past the police and into the building, and as night fell, they finally broke through. They smashed out the windows, and somebody blew the door open with a gelignite bomb. They threw Molotov cocktails, and in the early hours of the next day, the embassy caught fire. NBC cameras were there as the crowd roared, and the building went up in flames. The Irish government apologized, but Dubliners mostly were upset over what happened in Londonderry. I think the burning of the British Embassy might serve to highlight to the world, you know, the frustrations of the Irish people in the face of British intransigence as we see it in this country. The world did take notice. Even President Nixon was concerned. A few days later, he called William Rogers, the U.S. Secretary of State. Their conversation was captured by Nixon's secret sound-activated recording system. Because it is a terrible thing, you know, goddamn people burning down the embassy and the rest of the Irish are... Uh, are wrong, and the British have been wrong, but they, I don't think they've been wrong on this, perhaps. Bloody Sunday marked a turning point on both sides of the Atlantic. It brought the world's attention to Northern Ireland, but it also changed the scope and the potential of the conflict. Before the massacre, the provisional IRA had focused on defending Catholic neighborhoods and hoped they could force the British to make reforms to the Northern Irish state. Tommy McKearney, a historian and former IRA volunteer, writes in his 2011 book that while the IRA was, quote, concerned initially with a defensive role and responding to rapidly developing circumstances, the provisional IRA did not follow a classic path of guerrilla warfare or insurrectionary seizure of power. There was no master plan for insurrection prior to the situation in Northern Ireland deteriorating and descending into violent chaos. He goes on to point out that, contrary to popular belief, the provisional IRA wasn't always trying to force a British withdrawal. In fact, on September 5th, 1971, less than a year before Bloody Sunday, the organization published a five-point plan. It outlined their conditions for an end to hostilities. It included demands for a British ceasefire, the release of detainees, and compensation for those injured by the British Army. It also called for the Northern Ireland Assembly to be abolished and replaced by a regional parliament. This would represent the nine counties in the province of Ulster. But what they didn't demand was a complete British withdrawal from the island. But after Bloody Sunday, Northern Ireland was primed for insurrection. The ranks of the IRA swelled with new volunteers, money and guns poured in from the United States, and they had new levels of support in the Republic of Ireland. This all added up to a new political context, one that had dramatically shifted in Republicans' favor. The IRA believed they were just months away from ending British rule. 1972 would be their year of victory, or so they thought. <laughs> The FBI believes that much of Norade's money goes directly to the purchase of weapons for the IRA. Kennedy, a grandson of County Wexford, proposed yesterday Britain pull its troops out of Northern Ireland. By bringing its bombs to London, the IRA may have been trying to play on the growing feeling that it's time to bring the army home. You're listening to Foreign Agent, and my name is Nate Levy. This is episode three. 
Norid was good at getting publicity and causing a scene, but right from the beginning, they attracted the wrong kind of attention. In this episode, we'll look at how far the U.S. government was willing to go to disrupt Norid's activities. The Nixon administration forced the group to register under an arcane law meant to suppress Nazi sympathizers. At the same time, Nixon himself was wooing the Irish-American vote. Not to be outdone, Irish Republicans brought their issue to the floor of Congress and all the way to the White House. But with greater publicity came more problems and bigger enemies. Norid fell out with sympathetic groups over the question of armed struggle. And politicians who had once defended them now tried to siphon support away from their cause. And in the early 1970s, Norid and the IRA had the wind at their back. Internment without trial of nationalists had pushed many Catholics to support the IRA, and the massacre in Derry increased that number. Tommy McKierney was 20 at the time and had just recently joined the IRA. I remember I lived at the time in a small village of about 12, 1,300 people. The nationalist population closed their shops. There was, if you like, a general strike for about two, three days until the funerals took place. It was the type of civic engagement by the nationalist population that hadn't really been seen to the same extent before because of the enormity of the event. And in ways you're talking about the escalation of conflict from one stage to the other. In March of 1972, the British government tacitly acknowledged that the Northern Irish state could no longer govern, and they imposed direct rule. In the British province of Northern Ireland today, Parliament was dissolved and the government disbanded to be replaced tomorrow by a single British official who will rule Northern Ireland for at least a year. Although NBC didn't report it, this was a goal of some in the civil rights movement. They believed they had a better chance at real equality under direct rule from Westminster. It was also a catalyst for militant Republicans. The IRA made even more attacks on local police and British Army units. Snipers picked off British soldiers as they patrolled the streets of Belfast and Derry. The Associated Press reported that bombings had become a regular occurrence across the province. The first of today's bombs was in an office plot close to the city center. Between 80 and 100 pounds of gelignite ripped the heart out of the building. The bomb attack followed last night's gun battle between the army and the IRA. British authorities were fighting an increasingly well-armed insurgency, and they were desperately trying to figure out where the guns were coming from. There was lots of evidence pointing to the United States, including those six suitcases of weapons found in Cove that we heard about in episode one. But British intelligence knew that the IRA was raising money there as well, and focused on the Irish Northern Aid Committee. And so the British embassy lobbied the U.S. government to crack down on the group. The FBI started watching Joe Cahill and Dahi O'Connell, two founding members of the provisional IRA, as they traveled back and forth from Ireland to the United States. The government didn't know it at the time, but Cahill was the man who had set up the smuggling operation on the QE2 ocean liner. He was also a regular in the back rooms of Irish bars in New York. I did meet Joe Cahill. He was a very gentle, very quiet-spoken man with a lovely Belfast accent. This is Bridget Farrell, an Irish immigrant who was involved with Norade in its early days. Joe Cahill was known as Dr. Brown, so the code word for Joe's presence was Dr. Brown is in town. That was a pseudonym. No doubt they were monitoring Joe. Despite the pseudonym, Cahill was well known to federal investigators. He was an above-ground IRA leader. After internment without trial started in 1971, Cahill held a surprise press conference at a West Belfast school. 
he introduced himself as the new commander of the IRA's Belfast Brigade. He also said that internment hadn't diminished the group's capacity at all. This must be the easiest period in the history of any revolutionary movement in Ireland to get recruits. They simply flew in. Cahill was also Norad's man in Ireland. He received the cash and money orders they collected and brought them back to Dublin. For the federal government, this drew a direct line between Irish Northern Aid and the IRA. As early as 1970, just months after Norad was founded, the FBI began monitoring them. And they would have used every means available to them. That's Andrew Wilson, a professor of modern Irish history at Loyola University. Infiltration, electronic surveillance, mail interception, the, the use of uh, informers, all of that became part and parcel of that, of that surveillance. And, and essentially, in the 70s onwards, just ripping the ass out of NORAID and the IRA support network uh, in the United States was, was the ultimate goal. Irish-American FBI agents pretended to be Republican sympathizers to attend NORAID meetings all across the country. The agents wrote down who was there and who said what. They took pictures of members at events and at demonstrations. And undercover agents even made a habit of visiting Irish bars looking for militant Republican sympathizers. Documents from the FBI, which were released through the Freedom of Information Act, are full of details about how the government collected information on Irish Northern Aid. There are press releases on Norad letterhead that announce events with Joe Cahill, and some relaying provisional IRA communications. There are newspaper clippings and copies of letters sent to and from Norad chapters. There are even detailed reports from informants describing Norad events around the country in all of their boring minutia. For example, one source reported that the Norad chapter in Passaic, New Jersey had 12 members, but only five or six showed up for the meetings. Another reported that an upcoming lecture and dance in Philadelphia would cost $3 at the door. But the FBI wanted every detail they could get on Norad, no matter how small, and they weren't content to just watch. This all took place under Nixon's Justice Department during the heyday of COINTELPRO. Under this counterintelligence program, any group that was deemed subversive to the government was targeted for surveillance and disruption. Usually the feds went after new left groups or those calling for black liberation. But the administration was under a lot of pressure from the British to cinch off support for the provisional IRA. So they went after NORAID, even though most of its members probably voted for Nixon in the 1972 election. The Justice Department came up with a plan to undermine NORAID's activities. Using the information that the FBI had gathered, they filed an application to require NORAID to register as the foreign agent of the Provisional IRA. The Foreign Agents Registration Act was an act passed in 1938. This is Dr. Daniel Zak, a professor at City College in New York. That required organizations engaging in political activities that had a foreign principle to report in detail their income, remittances, disbursements, activities, what their connection was uh, to the foreign principle. The law gives the federal government a lot of power to monitor and to investigate. Foreign agents have to submit detailed fundraising reports every six months. They're also subject to warrantless reviews of their financial records and membership roles, exactly what the Justice Department would need to dampen Irish Northern Aid's fundraising efforts. Norid called in their go-to lawyer, Paul O'Dwyer. In 1968, 1972, and 1976, he ran for U.S. Senator in New York. 
but he lost every time. He did become the president of the New York City Council in 1974, and he supported a variety of left-wing causes. O'Dwyer also had a history of defending Irish Republicans, and his office would go on to defend the Fort Worth Five, which we covered in episode one. But in 1970, O'Dwyer, along with his nephew, Frank Durkin, and a collection of other sympathetic lawyers, launched a legal campaign on Norade's behalf to fight the foreign agent designation. They argued that Norade was being unfairly singled out. Was the Catholic Church a foreign agent of the Vatican? Did Jewish organizations represent the state of Israel? The Foreign Agents Act hadn't been used against these groups, so why was the Department of Justice using it against Norade? In their view, it was purely political. This was not a successful argument, and the government eventually prevailed. In the beginning of 1971, Norade registered as a foreign agent, but not of the Irish Republican Army. Instead, they listed the Northern Aid Committee in Belfast as their foreign principal. The government was not pleased. In the FBI documents that were released under the Freedom of Information Act, there's a 131-page report from 1973. It lays out the government's case that Norade was the foreign agent of the IRA. You would think that this would mean following the money. And the report does have copies of checks and financial records that detail hundreds of thousands of dollars being sent to Northern Ireland. But the majority of the government's argument was made simply by quoting from Norade's own statements. Among the documents are copies of letters sent to Norad and their replies. One suspicious letter from a supposed donor in Syracuse, New York, asks, quote, What faction do you support in Northern Ireland? And are you registered with the Justice Department? Norad didn't seem to find the letter suspicious at all. Its response was enthusiastic. Our support goes exclusively to the provisional IRA and those who are working with them. The government lawyers even pointed out that in Norade's Bronx headquarters, there were even t-shirts for sale with the slogan, IRA, all the way. It seemed pretty indisputable that Irish Northern Aid had some connection to the IRA. But they would fight the designation all the way to 1984, when they were charged with contempt of court. Rather than pay a fine, Norade finally agreed to name the IRA as their foreign principal, but with a disclaimer stating that it was under protest. After the 1971 foreign agent registration, the U.S. government was able to examine Norade's financial records. But this really only gave them a partial idea of the group's fundraising. Most of the money was collected in cash. They held dances, lectures, and raffles in the Bronx and in South Boston and West Philadelphia. Often representatives from the provost would show up and they'd give a speech on the latest events in Northern Ireland and then ask people to open their wallets. This is John Joe McGurl, the former IRA chief of staff. He spoke at an event in Philadelphia in 1975 that was recorded by Thames Television. They know the cause they're serving, and I ask you a sincere Irish men and Irish women to make sure that that help will come to Ireland, because there can be no turning back this time. The events offered Norid crowds a sense of connection to the struggle, and they filled the buckets going around the room with cash. This gave someone at the FBI an idea. They combed through Norid's newspaper, The Irish People, looking for events that advertised speakers from Ireland. Then they passed the person's name to the State Department, who would figure out a way to deny their application for a visa. These denials were a real problem for Norid for almost 30 years, but it gave them a cause to rally around. Joe Cahill was an early test case. In September 1971, he was flying to New York from Ireland to launch a four-week fundraising tour. 
He was traveling under his own name, and when he arrived at JFK, he was told that his visa had been revoked because of an earlier criminal conviction. He was taken into custody and was held at an immigration detention center for a week until he was deported back to Ireland, but not without giving a press conference first. I think that is the one big thing that I have gained. If I had to come in normally to America, there wouldn't have been the publicity there is today. And I do believe that our cause has gained tremendously by the publicity given to me. The most direct challenge to Norway didn't come from State Department bureaucrats or FBI agents. It came in the form of Irish-American politicians, drawn from the so-called Lace Curtain Irish. They were the Irish immigrants who had joined the American middle class and had abandoned their connection to the struggle back home. There's no family that better embodies this transformation than the Kennedys. In 1963, John F. Kennedy gave a speech to the Irish Parliament. Although he was in Dublin, it was also intended for Irish Americans back home. He evoked nostalgia for the old country and the long journey that Irish immigrants had made. No people ever believed more deeply in the cause of Irish freedom than the people of the United States. And no country contributed more to building my own than your sons and daughters. JFK's brother, Edward Kennedy, also used Ireland for personal and political ends. In 1962, just before successfully running for Senate, he went to Ireland to visit the old family farm. He was accused of using the trip to boost support for his campaign in Massachusetts, which is heavily Irish. But Kennedy denied it to RTE, Ireland's state television broadcaster. Mr. Kennedy, does your trip in fact presage your, your uh, descent upon the political scene in, in the United States? Well, I'm uh, delighted to, first of all, to be here in Ireland and to be making a trip this afternoon down to County Wexford, New Ross. Well, is this part of your fact-finding trip, or is it purely a sentimental trip? No, this is purely a sentimental trip here. Sentimental or not, Ireland was important to his constituency and his political career. For the next three decades, he would remain involved in the conflict and even help bring it to an end. By the 1990s, he'd become the voice of mainstream Irish-American opinion. But it took a while to get there. In the early 1970s, militant Irish Republicans had his ear, and he was regularly in touch with the American Committee for Ulster Justice. This group was founded in 1971 by Paul O'Dwyer, while he was also defending Norad in court. Their goal was to lobby American politicians to support the Northern Ireland civil rights movement and the demand for a united Ireland. The two men often discussed the latest events, and Kennedy railed against the Justice Department during the Fort Worth Five case. In 1971, ABC reported that he'd taken it a step further. Senators Edward Kennedy and Abraham Ribicoff introduced a resolution today calling for the withdrawal of British forces from Northern Ireland. Describing Ireland as Britain's Vietnam, Kennedy urged reunification of the two Irelands. Norid was ecstatic. A United States senator was making their case on Capitol Hill. The daily headlines tell us what Britain has done to Ulster, but we are only just beginning to realize what Ulster has done to Britain. It is fair to say, I think, that the launching of internment has brought British justice to her knees. Following Bloody Sunday, Kennedy started making more comparisons to Vietnam. He said that the massacre was Britain's my lai. To many people, this put him on the same side as the IRA. Nixon's State Department assured the British government that Kennedy's position didn't represent official policy. And privately, Nixon went even further. But you know, the, and, and let's face it, the Irish are, these people, Irish are pretty goddamn bad here. They're... The Kennedy type, you know, raising hell, blowing up the place, burning down the embassy and all that. British politicians attacked Kennedy for his position. But the senator didn't back down. 
The conflict didn't turn into Vietnam. But after Bloody Sunday, the reach and ferocity of the violence increased. Loyalist paramilitary groups were back on the streets. They were made up of Protestants who wanted to remain British and saw any form of republicanism as an existential threat. Loyalist gangs bombed pubs and shot random Catholics on the streets. They attacked Catholic businesses and hit targets in the Republic of Ireland. They even bombed the national broadcasting company, RTE, in Dublin. All along, these groups had help from the state. In 2022, a report by the police ombudsman concluded that the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the police force in Northern Ireland, had colluded in many of these killings. The same was true of the British Army. This state-sanctioned violence just added to the chaos and helped to create an ethnic dimension to the conflict. By 1972, the violence had reached a fever pitch. It was the deadliest year of the Troubles. That summer, the IRA called a ceasefire that lasted for about a month. High-ranking members were brought to London to negotiate in secret with the British Home Secretary. But the talks failed, and the war began again. The Associated Press carried the news. The bombs began going off in Belfast only about two hours after the IRA announced the end of the ceasefire. This one ripped apart a garage near the city centre. But the main bombing target was Londonderry, where six bombs went off in less than ten minutes. Shops over a wide area were smashed, but there were no casualties. In 1973, a special active service unit of the Belfast Brigade arrived in London. They were going to bring the war in Ireland to England's doorstep. On March 9th, NBC reported that they planted bombs across the capital. London, on the day after, was a suspicious place. Every car parked by government buildings on Horse Guards Parade was searched. One unidentified car parked by the Foreign Office had its trunk blown open. False alarm. There was nothing in it. Over the next few years, the IRA carried out more bombings in Britain. Warnings were phoned in, but often the explosions killed or injured innocent people. Even the most supportive Irish Americans had a hard time with these attacks, and Norad leaders sent messages back to Ireland, saying that the bloodshed was hurting their fundraising efforts. One of these attacks even came close to Senator Kennedy's family. In 1975, his niece, Caroline, the daughter of his brother John, was studying for a year in London. There was a bombing in London this morning of more than usual interest, apparently the work of the Irish Republican Army. The bomb shook up Caroline Kennedy, daughter of the late president, whose host in London was the target of the bomb. She is living in England, taking an art appreciation course. NBC reported that Caroline Kennedy was visiting the home of the conservative MP, Hugh Fraser. He was a friend of her grandfather when he was the U.S. ambassador to the U.K., Frazier was getting ready to drive Caroline to one of their classes, but just before they were about to leave, he'd gotten a phone call. Down on the street, a bomb placed underneath Frazier's Jaguar exploded, killing an oncologist who happened to be walking by with his dog. If Frazier and Kennedy's niece had left a few moments earlier, they would have been killed too. It's not clear how much the bombing affected Senator Kennedy's thinking on the conflict. But in the mid-70s, he started to shift his rhetoric. This was in part due to his relationship with a politician from Derry named John Hume. Hume was a prominent figure in the civil rights movement and a leader of the Derry Citizens Action Committee. This is him at a 1971 anti-internment rally 
that was covered by Thames Television. When we first took to the streets, we went there with our bare hands. We were beaten off the streets. And the world came to our side because it was very clear that we were not aggressors, that we were in fact a defenseless people with a just cause. This is Professor Andrew Wilson again. One of the major steps in that process was a phone call that Ted Kennedy made to John Hume. He invited him to go and visit him in Bonn, and they met and had a significant conversation for the first time. And from that first meeting, then Ted Kennedy and John Hume became very close friends, and Hume would play a very important part in bringing Ted Kennedy and towards supporting a constitutional nationalist position, the SDLP and, and the Irish government. It's hard to imagine now, but in the 1970s, the British totally rejected any input from the Irish or American governments when it came to Northern Ireland. They said it was an internal matter and none of your business. John Hume thought Kennedy had enough celebrity and political power to force the issue, to make it the business of the United States. Hume believed in a united Ireland, but he was not a supporter of the IRA, and he pushed Kennedy to move away from militant rhetoric. He wanted to encourage Americans to stop giving money to the Irish Northern Aid Committee and support democratic attempts to reunite the island. For people who believe that Ireland should be united and independent from Britain, there's one key fault line. Do you believe that the armed struggle has a role to play, or should it be done purely through the democratic process? In the 1970s, the provisional IRA, Sinn Féin, and other paramilitary groups believed that physical force was a necessary tactic to achieve their goal. But plenty of Irish nationalists disagreed, and John Hume was one of them. He helped found the Social Democratic and Labour Party, or the SDLP, and their position was that a reunited Ireland could only be achieved through peaceful means. This is what's known as constitutional nationalism, and it was popular. The SDLP regularly won seats in the British Parliament and in local government. Hume also wanted to harness the power of Irish America. In 1980, 40 million people self-identified as Irish American. That's over 17% of the population. And if they could be reached, they could help pressure the US government to confront the British. But Sinn Féin and the IRA were also making overtures to Irish Americans. Figuring out how to keep this community engaged while moving them towards constitutional nationalism was key to Hume's political future. And he believed it was the key to the future of the conflict. The Irish government agreed. They were especially concerned about NORAID. The group seemed to hold an outsized place in the imagination of Liam Cosgrave, the Irish prime minister. In 1976, he made a trip to the United States. He was scheduled to give a speech in front of Congress on St. Patrick's Day, and he was going to make a direct appeal to Irish Americans to stop giving money to NORAID. British, American, and Irish diplomats were all very worried about getting this right. In 2006, the State Department released thousands of declassified diplomatic cables from the period, and one of them lays out the pros and cons of whether or not to call out NORAID by name. Cosgrave's advisors wanted to hit the group specifically, but said that every time NORAID was attacked, the donations rolled in. 
The State Department recommended leaving Norid unnamed, and in the end, Cosgrave and his staff agreed. Here's how NBC covered the speech. Neither Cosgrave nor Mr. Ford mentioned Northern Ireland in public remarks at the White House. That was saved for private discussion. But when Cosgrave later went before a joint session of Congress, he said he had some blunt talk for Americans. There are in this country some people who contribute in the most direct way possible to violence in Ireland by sending either guns or explosives. A larger number have contributed thoughtlessly or otherwise to organizations nominally engaged in relief work which have used that money to buy guns and explosives for use in Northern Ireland. In a press conference later, however, he called out Norid by name. I hope that a number of people recognize the uh, objectives which uh, was really at the basis of their fundraising activities because it it may not be generally known, but uh, at least one shipment of arms was captured by us some three years ago and some of those involved had been active in the Norad business. Norad hit back in their newspaper. They published a series of articles about him. The first was called Cosgrave and Derogation of Duty. And a week later, they upped the ante with a front-page headline that read Cosgrave, Disgusting. A week after that, they still weren't ready to let it go and were in a piece on Cosgrave called Profile of a Traitor. Cosgrave and the Irish government weren't content to simply condemn Norid and the IRA. They felt that the bad publicity wasn't enough to dampen the group's popularity. And as the diplomatic cables show, they thought it might even increase it. They figured it would hurt Norid and the IRA more if they could channel Irish-American sympathies towards the SDLP and the cause of constitutional nationalism. John Hume used his friendship with Senator Kennedy to meet other influential Irish-American politicians. He wanted them to take a stand against both British overreach in Northern Ireland and physical force republicanism. Four Irish-American politicians rose to the top. They were somewhat melodramatically called the Four Horsemen. It was Kennedy, the Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and Hugh Carey, who was the governor of New York. They had all spoken out against the British occupation in the early 1970s, but now they were open to supporting the initiative to take on Norid and the IRA. On St. Patrick's Day in 1977, they issued a joint statement. It called for, quote, all those organizations engaged in violence to renounce their campaigns of death and destruction. They also asked Americans to stop providing support and encouragement to those groups. According to Andrew Wilson, this had mixed results. That might have convinced moderate Irish Americans to keep away from Norad or more irredentist organizations. For those that were already in Norad, I don't think it would have made a hell of a lot of difference. They would have said that these are pseudo-Irishmen who have forgotten their roots and they're undermining the legitimate Republican cause in in Ireland. I, I think there would have been an attitude, well, you know, screw them. That's pretty much how Bridget Farrell felt. I have no respect for Ted Kennedy's position on this. They did not understand the grassroots uh, need of for the for the nationalist people of, of the North, and they preferred to go with with a much more pro-British, anti-IRA role, and I, I did not respect that. The animus between Norid and the Four Horsemen only got more intense. In 1988. Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan said that he was so afraid that he might be attacked by Irish Republicans that he had to wear a bulletproof vest to walk safely in the St. Patrick's Day Parade. 
In this period, NORAID and other Republican organizations were making their own political moves. For decades, Irish Americans formed a large bloc within the classic Democratic coalition, along with Italians, Jews, and African Americans. But as the civil rights and anti-war movements caused fractures in the Democratic Party, working-class Irish Americans wavered in their support for the coalition. This was clear during the 1972 election, and Nixon's success with voters in New York City took everyone by surprise. Even news anchors at NBC couldn't believe it. Uh, Richard Nixon is running ahead in New York City. A Republican is running ahead in New York City. And uh, that is simply remarkable. I find it uh, hard to encompass. A large number of Irish Americans voted for Richard Nixon in his landslide election over George McGovern. This made them voters that both parties wanted to win over. Irish Republican activists saw this as an opportunity to pressure and lobby politicians to take their line on Northern Ireland. And to do this, they formed the Irish National Caucus. It was a group aimed at pressuring Capitol Hill to support more militant nationalist goals. It included members of Congress, trade union reps, and Norid affiliates. Fred Burns O'Brien was the information director for the Irish National Caucus. This is him in 1975 during an interview with Thames TV. We've got the electoral process in 1976 coming up in this country. We've got all this working for us, the bicentennial, the fact that America drove out Britain 200 years ago and the principles are the same. And whether some Americans like to admit it, the tactics used uh, by the Irish now were, were copied directly from the Americans. The caucus lobbied the Democratic Party to include Ireland in the 1976 platform. And they were successful. But it didn't come with the condemnation of British abuses or call for a British withdrawal. They also set their sights on Jimmy Carter, who was running for president in 1976. He was looking to win back some of the Irish-American voters that the Democrats had lost to Nixon. Carter gave vague signals that he would take a harder line with the British over Northern Ireland, and Norrie was delighted. It seemed like Irish Republicans were about to have a friend in the Oval Office. It's now 4 o'clock in the morning in New York, 1 o'clock in the morning in California, where they have not yet decided who they want to be president of the United States. But ABC News believes that that's academic, that the rest of the country has decided that Jimmy Carter will be the next president of the United States. Carter defeated Gerald Ford, who was Nixon's vice president. But he didn't take Norrie's line on Northern Ireland. Ultimately, he was won over by the lobbying of the Four Horsemen and the Irish government. And he made soft calls on the British to reach a peaceful settlement and offered American investments as an incentive. He did call on Americans not to support organizations, quote, whose involvement, direct or indirect, in this violence delays the day when the people of Northern Ireland can live and work together in harmony. Even though what Carter said was pretty anodyne, it was still an important milestone. This was the first time a U.S. president had spoken publicly about the Troubles. In a sense, Norrie had achieved one of its goals by getting Carter to make a statement. But it just wasn't in the way that they had hoped. We will do everything we possibly can to prevent American citizens' assistance to the terrorists in Ireland. After this defeat, Norrie and the Irish National Caucus parted ways. The caucus dropped its support for armed resistance and began working with the Four Horsemen. They focused on legislation that would limit American support for the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the police force in Northern Ireland. They had an early victory when Mario Biaggi, a congressman from the Bronx, introduced an amendment to a spending bill that would block American arms sales to the RUC. 
Tip O'Neill, who was the Speaker of the House, also supported the amendment. He and the other four horsemen felt that this was the way to pressure the British to make real gestures toward a peaceful settlement. It caused a diplomatic spat, but the deal was suspended, and the British were stunned. By 1975, it was clear that there wasn't going to be a decisive victory for the IRA or the British Army. Loyalist violence was on the rise, and support for the provost was flagging in the Republic of Ireland and the United States. This gave the UK an opportunity to reshape the popular understanding of the conflict as intractable sectarian violence rather than an anti-colonial struggle. And to do it, they opened up a new front in the media war. The British Information Service, a government agency, started supplying footage, sound, and talking points to American media. And by handing out their own press material, they could make sure that the conflict was portrayed to their advantage. American news outlets were happy to use it and covered each new incident as inexplicable tribal bloodletting. This challenges Norit's framing that this is an, an anti-colonial conflict, one in which the British state is unjust and repressive. This is Dr. Daniel Zak again. And I think this has an impact, particularly among people who aren't connected to these tight inner circles uh, of the Republican movement in the United States, or have any kind of connection within the Irish American neighborhoods where you would have found somebody on the ground that had family in the North, that had a different narrative of what was going on in that space. What we see in the fundraising patterns is a decline beginning in the mid-1970s. And part of that is a result of the shift of British strategy from a militarized approach to the conflict to one that is devoted to criminalization and essentially using the criminal justice system as a way to counter the Irish Republican movement, which I think dampens, at least in Irish America, this widespread grievance that the community is under attack from the state. The late 1970s were tough times for Norid. After a surge of support following internment and then Bloody Sunday, the political landscape had changed and their enemies had multiplied. Constitutional nationalists were siphoning off support from Irish America. The Department of Justice had them tied up in lawsuits and kept them under constant surveillance. The heads of the American and Irish governments were calling them out on national television. And the British had ramped up a media blitz to reshape the public understanding of the conflict. But even with these powerful enemies, Norid remained militant and dedicated. And at the periphery of the organization, American guns continued to flow to the IRA. Even with all of their resources, the federal government couldn't cut off the supply. The FBI and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms made a number of small arrests throughout the 1970s but it didn't add up to much. A spokesperson from the Treasury Department said that they believe there was a single, quote, consolidator, an Irishman who travels under an alias who made the rounds every two weeks or so to collect guns from their purchasers. This sounded like some grand conspiracy, but they weren't so wrong. The person they were looking for existed and had been under their noses the whole time. He was a simple man of strong convictions, and he went to work every day guarding other people's money and spent his free time sending guns to his comrades across the sea. 
and it was a lot of guns. In the next episode, the U.S. government takes its best shot, and Norad gets a little help from the CIA. But first, be on the lookout for a bonus episode that's coming soon. This podcast is called Foreign Agent. It was created by me, Nate Levy, and my co-producer, Michael McCann. It's distributed by Navarra Media. Music is by Matt Huxley, with additional music by Jamie Weiss. In researching this episode, we relied on the following books. The American Connection by Jack Holland, Irish America and the Ulster Conflict by Andrew Wilson, and The Provisional IRA, From Insurrection to Parliament by Tommy McKierney. Hey, it's Rivka Brown, commissioning editor and reporter for Navarra. If you follow us on social media, you'll have noticed that we're currently asking our listeners, readers and viewers to support Navarra Media with a monthly donation from as little as £1. Over 10,000 of you listen to our podcasts each and every month, and we couldn't produce a single second without our regular supporters. So if you've ever thought about supporting us, now's the time to visit navaramedia.com forward slash support and donate anything you can from £1 per month. Back truly independent journalism and become a regular supporter today. We can't do this without you.